Well, everyone loves a good story. For whatever reason, we humans have a greater appetite for stories and plain old textbook information. Maybe it's just because stories play into our imaginations better, and for that reason, they're so much easier to remember. And you see this all the time with sermons. How many times have you heard a sermon, and then weeks later, you, you totally forget what the sermon was about? But you remember that one illustration, which is burned into your mind. And this just happens all the time. It even happens to me. You just can't help it. We just like stories. This may explain why God chose to communicate his word to us largely in story format. A huge chunk of the Bible comes to us in narrative, just storytelling. These stories are true and they teach truth, but they do so in a way that's a lot easier to understand and remember. Stories just leave behind a greater impact. For example, I could tell you all that slow and steady wins the race, or I could tell you the story of the tortoise and the hare. And in the end, they'd both tell you about the same thing, but one of them would capture your imagination and be burned into your mind, and, and you know which one. It's interesting, the guy who wrote that is named Aesop, or Aesop, depending on how you pronounce it, and he lived 2,500 years ago. That's pretty amazing, and many of his stories were assembled together. They're all pretty much the same. They're little stories with depicting personified animals. They teach some moral lesson. You know, he very, he very easily could have just thrown together a compilation of, of moral lessons, just listed them out one by one. But then, if he did that, we probably wouldn't be talking about them 2,500 years later and remembering them and still learning from them. And these, these simple stories he told, they still teach. And just with our daughter the other day, and reading these, these fables, the goose and the golden egg, we all know it, you all remember it. One day a man was checking the nest of his goose, and he found this yellow egg. And he thought a trick was being played on him, so he was going to throw it away. But he decided to keep it, and when he got home on further inspection, he realized this really is an egg of pure gold. He's very excited, of course, and even better, it happened every morning. Every morning he went to check, and there was another golden egg there. And he soon became filthy rich by selling these eggs. But then, as he got rich... He got greedy, and he wanted to find a way to get all the gold out of the goose instead of just one egg per day. So he decided to kill the goose, and he opened it up thinking he'd find all the gold, and he found nothing. And the moral of the lesson is, of course, greed leads to ruin. And you'll probably remember that. And like I said, stories have, have a special way of communicating truth, and they do so in a memorable fashion. Some stories can even be life-changing, and that is, of course, Nowhere more true than with the Bible. Scripture records several stories of past events, true-to-life stories, but these are divinely orchestrated and recorded in order to communicate God's message to man. And ultimately, that changes lives. These aren't just stories, but the, it's truth that changes lives. And of all the stories in the Bible, though, none is greater or more life-changing than the story of Jesus even those who aren't religious or don't believe in God, they're still captivated by the story of Jesus. And when you realize it's true, it becomes truly life-changing. The early church, they really latched on to the story of Jesus, especially as found in the four Gospels, where we have that story format. Remember, they didn't have personal copies of the Bible yet. They had a little local church. They had a few manuscripts. So they would all huddle around and they would just listen to the stories of Jesus. And that story format really helped them remember. And to take it one step further to help them remember, 
they turned some of the stories into songs, into little hymns about the life of Jesus. In fact, some believe that these early, early hymns actually made their way into later letters of the New Testament. And one of those may be found in our passage for this morning, and that's Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. So if you haven't already, you can turn there now to Philippians chapter 2. All right, explain. We're going to just skip Mark for one week. We'll be back very shortly to see the pinnacle in Mark chapter 8. But this passage in Philippians 2 really deals with the same thread, the identity of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2. Most believe that Paul here is capturing really an early Christian hymn. He's, he's throwing it in here. But either way, Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11, it's a classic text. And it tells us all about really the, the story of Jesus in a very short, concise, but profound way. I'm curious, you know, if you had to write a short story about Jesus, just a little paragraph, just tell us, tell us about Jesus. What would you write? Just have one paragraph. It might even be a good exercise for you. What would you come up with? And irrespective, we're going to find out what God came up with, the divinely inspired little paragraph that captures the life of Jesus. Thankfully, this little passage doesn't need too much of an introduction. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi later in his life. In fact, he's writing this from prison. He's in jail when he writes this. This is the first time he's been imprisoned for his faith. But he still finds it in him to write to the churches, to encourage them, to exhort them. And he's doing that here with the church that's in Philippi. Now, thankfully, though, Philippi was a good church. They had their act together. They were pretty good. They didn't have any major problems, unlike the church in Corinth. Corinthians, they needed a couple of long letters. Philippians, they didn't need that much. But that doesn't mean they did not need to be exhorted to excel still more. And that's what he's doing here in Philippians chapter 2. He's urging them on to greater humility and service and love for one another, unity, still important reminders. And to do this, to remind them of their humility and service, he tells them a story, a little story about Jesus. That's what we want to turn our attention to now. We're not going to try and flesh out a whole huge Christology, although you can do that from this passage, you know, the study of Jesus. We're not trying to get too bogged down with theological debate, although there's some, some passages in here that we're going to have to spend some time on. But, but the point is, we want to just see Jesus, hear about him, learn about his life, who he is, his identity in particular, and then be changed as a result. What's the impact of that? We want to find out. So we're going to go through Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Hear the story of Jesus. Remember our Savior. Behold his identity and live rightly before him as a result. Now, as you know, any good story has a beginning, middle, and end, and this story is no exception, if we call it that. So we're going to get started by looking at the beginning of the story, number one. Simple enough, the beginning of the story. And join me starting in verse 5. Philippians 2, verse 5. He begins and says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who... Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Let's stop there for a moment. We have this short story beginning, and right off the bat, the main character is pretty obvious. It is Christ Jesus. 
And Christ, of course, is not his last name, if you maybe did not know. It is a title, comes first here. Jesus is the Christ, meaning the anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior, Savior of the world. But he comes to us in this passage not just as any Savior, but as the divine Savior. Verse 6, we get some backstory into this Jesus, and we learn that he existed before his time on earth in a special way. Before he came to earth, verse 6 says, he existed in the form of God. Now, right off the bat, everyone wants to know, okay, what, what does that mean? What does it mean for Jesus to have existed in the form of God? Look, that's a fair question. Let's talk about it. The word form in Greek is morphe. It has two basic senses. It can refer to your external appearance, your outward form, or your inner nature, your inward form. And we humans, we, we have an outward form. We have a distinct way we look, separates us from lions and tigers and whatnot. We also have a distinct inner form as well, a human nature, which also separates us from the animals on a more fundamental, personal level. Either way, though, do you realize it's very hard to make this phrase say anything other than Jesus is God? And since God has no outward form or appearance, God is spirit. Paul knows that very much. We have a pretty clear statement saying that Jesus shares the same inner nature or form as God. That's, that's pretty remarkable. He is in his essence, in his being, his nature, he, he is God. He is the form of God and he just existed that way. This word for exist in verse 6 expresses a person's essential and unchangeable nature. Jesus existed unalterably in the form of God. And this is confirmed in Scripture. He's never depicted as a created being who had a beginning, but rather as one who has always been. And that would be God. You all know the verse, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that's such a... Such a foreign phraseology. He was. It's talking about Jesus. It says he was with God and he was God. It's like, wait, which one is it? But it's just both. He was God and with God at the same time, which we take to mean, of course, he's of the same essence as God, but different in person. But many times we see Jesus, he's shown to be co-eternal with, with God the Father. Think about this. John chapter 17, verse 5, a huge verse that prayer that Jesus prays right before his death. And he says, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You think about that, it's pretty significant. He's praying that God would give him the glory that he shared with God the Father before the world was. Co-eternal with God. This view that Jesus is part of the Godhead is only confirmed in the second half of verse 6. Look back at verse 6 in the middle. It's still speaking of Jesus. It says, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now we're going to talk about this whole grasping thing in just a minute. And what does that mean? Some want to say, oh, he lost his divine nature. He lost grasp of it. That's not the case. But, but I want to make this point. One way or another... Do you see in verse 6 
that at least at one point, at least before he came to earth, Jesus was equal with God. You see how it says that? I mean, he had equality with God, whether you think he lost it or not. It says he had equality with God. Someone to argue that Jesus lost his deity to become a man, like, you know, stories of Roman gods who gave up their immortality to become human. But we'll get to that in a second. Even if you want to argue that Jesus lost his deity, you can't get around the fact that in verse 6, it says he was at least at one point, he had equality with God. And that is still rather remarkable. They shared the same essence. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. It's just, it's a massive conclusion to make. But it's real. Jesus is God. It's an essential truth. It separates people. You can't get the gospel right unless you get Jesus right. And you can't get Jesus right unless you get his identity right. And he was divine. We're going to see very soon in Mark chapter 8, Jesus, he asks his disciples just a little question. He says, who do you think I am? Who do you say that I am, he eventually says to them. And really, that's one of the most important questions any disciple will ever face. Who do you say that Jesus is? You must see from Scripture and you must believe in your heart that he was the divine Messiah, the Christ and the Son of God. So already, the short story begins with Jesus, who has existed as God, But there's still that question, well, okay, did he lose his deity, though? Did he give that up to become a man? Because after all, it does say that he did not regard his equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. See that in verse 7? So what what does that mean? That's another fair question. What does that mean? I'm going to start off with that whole idea of not regarding his equality with God a thing to be grasped. You've got to humor me. You've got to labor through some teaching here because we just got to get to the bottom of this. But harpagmos is the word translated grasped. Originally referred to something seized, like a plunder or treasure. And later came to refer to anything that you, you clutch, you prize, you treasure. If there are any you know, Lord of the Ring fans, just think of Gollum and the ring. He just grasps onto it and he just treasures it selfishly he won't let it go he will never share it with anyone it's just his and what this is saying is that jesus did not regard his divine nature like this which means that even though he was god and he had all the rights and all the privileges all the glory that comes with being god he did not regard those selfishly It's not possible for Jesus to lose his divine nature any more than it's possible for you to lose your human nature. But even though for Jesus, it's not selfish for him to seek his own glory, to serve himself. He's worthy. But he was willing to humble himself and lower himself in order to serve humanity. This is what it means for Jesus to not regard his equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be utilized for himself it's not possible for jesus to lose his divine nature but it is possible for him to forego all of the rights and privileges that come with being god 
for a time. And that's what he did in order to serve us. I want you to picture this. Try and make a little more sense for you with a story of a, in a story. Let's picture a king. He's sitting on this high and lofty throne. He's in his royal palace, which itself is up on this high mountain. He's totally detached and separated from the kingdom below, the people below. And he's just enjoying all the glories of being king. He's got servants who wait on him 24-7. They, they meet his every need. Everything he uses is made of pure gold. Even the silverware is gold. His clothes, his appearance are always immaculate. He's just a glorious king. But then a plague strikes the kingdom. It just ravages the kingdom. For some reason, the king and his servants, they're all immune. Maybe because they're so healthy, they have higher hygiene standards, who knows. But they're immune, but the people below are being ravaged. Everyone is sick and dying. Even the doctors are dying. There's no one to help them. They're just dying out. So what does the king do? Although he has, he has every right to just stay up in his palace and enjoy his glory, he could do that. But because he loves his people, he gets up, he leaves his throne, he leaves behind the fancy meals, the golden forks, the servants, the, the nice clothes, the, the fresh shower every day. He leaves it behind and he descends to his festering kingdom in order to help his people. And when he does that, has the king lost his glory? Has he given up his throne? Does he no longer own the throne? Or his power? Is it gone? No. None of that has changed. It's just that he's not using his golden utensils right now. He's left them behind for a moment to help his people. He's not using his kingship selfishly for himself. And that's what Jesus did. Though he was God, he determined to leave the glories of heaven and to come to earth to save a, a sick and dying people. This condescension, this move downward into the muck of humanity did not cost Jesus his deity. That's not possible. But it did come at the cost of utilizing his glory as God. His rights, his privileges would have to be set aside momentarily for this mission You'd have to be emptied of these rights and privileges. And that gets us to verse 7. You see that beginning of verse 7? It says he emptied himself. And people always want to know what this means. They wonder about it. And it, it is a big deal. I said we didn't want to get too bogged down with all the theological details, but we've got to just get through this one more point. Because it is a big deal. What does it mean to say that Jesus emptied himself? This Greek verb, kanao, means empty. When we hear of empty, we think of, okay, I got a glass of water and I pour it out. And when all the water's out, it becomes empty. It's, it loses its contents. It's literally empty. And if you just apply that to Jesus, you might think, well, did he just lose his deity, just poured out his divine nature and he's not God anymore? He's empty? Some might think that. It's not the case, and I want to just labor a little bit to show you why. And first, this verb, kanao, it's always used in a figurative sense in the New Testament never literally of emptying something of its contents. And we would say also that this emptying must likewise be figurative here because how can God literally lose his divinity, empty his divine nature? If that were the case, we would have to say he wasn't God to begin with. 
And we've already established, though, that Jesus, he was God by nature. He had the morphe of God, the form of God. And that's something, just by definition, it can't be changed or lost or altered. Instead, emptying here refers not to the loss of divinity, but to the loss of, of the rights and the privileges that come with his divinity. And we see this all throughout the New Testament. He came as a, a man. Did he lose his divine nature? No. He, he displayed that all the time. Every now and then we get that glimpse of, of the veil open. And we see that divine power come through. But he still set aside the rights and privileges that were his. We could also add that for Jesus. To give up his deity would, would go against the very purpose for him coming to earth, which was to make atonement for sin. And to do that, he had to be a fully man, to be a substitute for men. But he also had to be fully God, to be a sufficient substitute, a perfect substitute for men. So Jesus emptying himself does not mean he lost his deity or divine attributes. It's foreign to the context, the language, the theology of the New Testament. Rather, he set aside the independent exercise of his divine rights and privileges. And if you still don't quite get it, the next two phrases in verse 7 help clarify what took place when Jesus emptied himself. Look in verse 7. It says he emptied himself. And then it continues, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And this is huge. We have that word form again. He took the form, the morphe of, of a man. This means that Jesus, he didn't just take the appearance of a human. He wasn't a hologram. He had a real human nature. Even though he existed in the form of God, in the incarnation, he took on a second form, a second nature, a human nature. So you want to think about it this way, the incarnation. It wasn't a subtraction. He was not losing anything. Rather, it was an addition. He was gaining a second nature, a human nature. And this was real. He was fully human. He took the form or nature of a man. His humanity wasn't just a cloak or a shell in which his divine self was hiding. But somehow, somehow, his divine nature came together with this new human nature at the same time in the one person of Jesus. And that's where we stop. Because our minds just blow up. How is that possible? What does that mean? It's not a contradiction, but it it sure is a paradox. That's just a word we make up to describe things, two things which can be true. We just don't know how they fit and can be true at the same time. We just have to confess a bit of our ignorance. How can the one one person of Jesus have a, a human nature and a divine nature at the same time and they coexist? I don't know. But... That doesn't really bother me because I really do expect there to be some things about God that I'm not going to figure out. If there were a God and you could understand everything about him, there's not much of a God. We'd expect some transcendence to come into play here. And if anyone can figure out how a divine nature and a human nature can come together, it's probably going to be God. So he can figure it out. I'll do my best, but I'll stop where I have to stop. In all honesty, though, this, this truth, That Jesus, the one person of Jesus, he was fully divine, but fully man at the same time. It's just one of those truths that really it's it's impossible to fully understand 
but necessary to believe. It's quite the paradox. Jesus, the divine Jesus, took on the form of man. But notice this. Notice a special little nuance here in verse 7. He didn't just take the form of any man, not a king, not a ruler or a politician. He didn't come as a billionaire or a businessman, a military general. He took on the form of what? A slave. Bondservant. The word literally just slave. A bondservant or a slave is someone who owned nothing, not even his own life. He had no rights and privileges, which meant that for Jesus in this, this incarnation coming to earth, he went from having full rights and privileges to as a slave having none. And he went from owning everything to as a slave owning nothing. And uh, John MacArthur, you all know, he makes an excellent observation here. He says this, quote, When Jesus came into this world, he borrowed everything. A place to be born, a place to lay his head, a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee, an animal to ride into Jerusalem, a room for the Passover, a tomb to be buried in. End quote. It's very true. He owned everything, but when he came to earth, he borrowed it all. He didn't own anything. And this just comes with the territory of being a servant, a suffering servant. Once I think back again to that, that king illustration, this benevolent king, his people outside the kingdom, they're all sick, they're dying from this plague. So what does he do? He leaves the palace and he goes to the sick and he helps them. He feeds them, bathes them, clothes them, he treats them. Even as they're laying in their own waste and filth, he, he stoops down to help them. And all the while, what happens to him? His clothes get all dirty, he's going hungry, he doesn't have his servants. He's, he's really taking on the role of a slave. He's doing things that slaves would do. But is he still king? Yes. Does he still reign? Well, of course. Does he still have all of his power as king? Is that gone anywhere? No, he's still king. But for the time being, to help his people in desperate need, he has veiled that power, set it aside for the moment, left the glory of the palace, to serve the people. And that is what Jesus has done. And so we can say at this point, uh, we've had to spend a little extra time, but it's quite the beginning of the story. We're still at the beginning. We've got to get the beginning right. Putting it all together, it's a story, though, of just God, Jesus as God, always existing, and then he comes to earth. He's God, but he takes the form of a man. And he comes to our festering planet, not to be served, but to serve. He comes as a slave to serve humanity. And that's quite the beginning of a story. Starts off rather remarkable. Makes us wonder, what's going to come of this trip to earth by this king? And we find out next in the middle of the story. Secondly now, let's point to the middle of the story, which is in verse 8. Why don't you look there. Continues. Says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The focus now shifts to the viewpoint of those who saw Jesus. He came to earth and he was found in appearance as a man. And now, that word appearance, we are talking about now your outward appearance. Before, we're talking about the inner nature. Now, 
Not only did he take the form of a man, the nature of a man, but he also took the appearance of a man, the, the body, the outward nature. The problem is, as you all know, I, I imagine, when Jesus came to earth, most people, they all accepted the fact that he was a man, but their problem was that they thought he was only a man and not God. And just think of that humiliation. Can you think about that for a moment? Not only did he humble himself enough to, to stoop down to this level, taking on a human nature, but even as he did so, nobody even recognized him. Nobody even attributed him glory or honor as the king. It's like that you're that the king that has stooped down to help the people hit, hit by the plague, and they just treat you like a slave. They don't even recognize that you're the king. Instead, they call Jesus a liar, a sinner, a criminal, even demon-possessed. And what did he do about it? Nothing. He just, he took it. He humbled himself all the way. If we were in his sandals, we probably would have thrown in the towel a long time ago, busted out our divine powers, just started zapping people. People who are not recognizing us or attributing us glory, just take them out. But he refrained. He willingly was drinking the cup of God's wrath. There's a show, I'm not sure if it's on anymore, a show called Undercover Boss. You may have heard of. It's like a CEO figure. And he, he uh, he's CEO of a company and he goes and puts on a disguise and he takes some entry-level position in the in the company just to see, like, how are things going? How are my people treating their employees? And how's the business running? So just imagine, you're CEO, let's call it 7-Eleven. You're CEO of 7-Eleven. So you're going to go undercover. You get the disguise going on. And you become an entry-level clerk of this little branch or whatever. So you go undercover. But the store manager there, he just treats you like a dog. He yells at you. He takes away your breaks. He doesn't pay you for overtime. He's verbally abusing you. He's taking advantage of you. He's just making your life miserable, giving you no respect. It's terrible. At what point would you have enough? Would enough be enough? At what point would you say, okay, wait a second, you rip off the disguise, like, listen, pal, I'm the CEO, and now you're fired. Like, how long would it take for you to just end, end it all and just get rid of the person? Probably not that long. But Jesus came, he humbled himself, he placed himself under the power and authority of sinners. And he remained obedient, it says, how far? Even to the point of death. He let them kill him. And he went all the way for the sake of his enemies. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Just think of, think of Christ's death. He was found guilty of blasphemy for claiming to be the Messiah and the Son of God. They killed him for the truth for just being who he really was. And then how did they treat him before his death? He's putting together the gospel accounts. They slapped him. They beat him. They punched him. They stripped him. They whipped him. They spat upon him. They taunted him. They mocked him. They plucked out his beard. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They made him carry his own cross. They drove railroad spikes through his hands and his feet. And then they brutally crucified him. That's what happened. And all the while, he was their creator. 
At any moment, he could have called down 72,000 angels, wiped them all out, and just went back to heaven. But he humbled himself to the point of death. He went through all of this because his mission was to suffer God's wrath on behalf of these enemies, his enemies. Christ's obedience to the Father to pay for the sins of man continued to the point of death. And what does verse 8 say? Even death on the cross. And Paul says, even death on the cross to highlight to highlight this, the humiliating nature of crucifixion. It's terrible. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians, but perfected by the Romans. It was a painful and cruel way to die, but it was also a shameful way to die. No Roman citizen could even be crucified. Not even, they wouldn't allow it. No matter what you did, it's too shameful. It's only for the worst. And for Jews, crucifixion signaled someone who was cursed. You crucified. You, you've been cursed. You've been cursed by God. You're out of the covenant. You're out of God's blessings. You did, must have done something real bad to deserve crucifixion. And you know what? For Jesus, it's true. He was cursed. He became the curse for us. He took on our curse so that he might redeem us from the effects of the curse. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. But you know, this, this fate explains the incarnation in the first place. This is why the whole story exists. The reason for the story, Jesus came to die on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. That whoever believes in him may not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus came down so that he might bring humanity up. It's the king who came to the festering kingdom to rescue the sick. It's on the cross and with his death on the cross that our story reaches a climax. Every good story, the beginning, middle, and then there's a little climax right before the end, and this is no different. But thankfully, we know that his death on the cross is not the end of the story. That would be a very sad, tragic, defeated story. But this is not the end. Jesus did not stay on the cross. Though he died and though he was buried, his mission was not a failure. Let's keep reading and find now the end of the story. Thirdly, starting in verse 9, the end of the story. He continues and writes in verse 9, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Though he was laid in the grave, Jesus would not stay in the grave like Lazarus, but more so he rose and ascended to the right hand of the Father Christ did not regard the rights and privileges of his deity as something to be used selfishly, but he humbled himself. He assumed a human nature and he died for man. But for this very reason, because of his humility, he was exalted. I'm going to think back one more time to our king. He left the glory of his palace to help his plague-ridden people. After he has entered their world, 
after his hands have been dirtied by their filth, his clothes are dirty, he's gone hungry, he has tended to their needs, he has helped them, he's nursed them back to health. After he's done all this, do you think the king will return to his palace? Of course he will. When his job is done, when he has helped the people, he's going to go back to his throne. He's going to go back to the glory of the kingdom. And when he does so, his glory will be magnified because all those people he helped will only lift up his name more and more. Jesus dove into the swamp of humanity to rescue us from the mire, but his condescension was not to last forever. After rising from the dead, Jesus was exalted to the right hand of the Father, and he's given the name, which is above all names, highlighting his glory forever. As a side note, what's the name? You ever wonder that? What is that name that's above all names? Something is Jesus, just the name Jesus. Something the name hasn't been revealed. We don't know. And those both are very possible. Others, though, many believe that the name above, above all names is Lord. Just based on actually here in verse 11. You see here the name Lord connotes his, his glory, his honor, his deity. It's a name that truly is shared by no other. It's a name of sovereign authority. And such a name, whatever it is, will demand the response given in verse 10. Every knee will bow. He will be affirmed once and for all as the sovereign Lord of everything, all creation. Everything will bow that He is the Lord. And notice when it says every knee in verse 10, it's not kidding. It means every knee. It says of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. It's comprehensive language. It's not trying to split it all up. We're not trying to figure out who's who. It just means everyone. Everyone who's ever lived. doesn't matter when you lived. doesn't matter where you lived. You're going to bow the knee. That, of course, includes believers, those who willingly bow the knee out of love and adoration for their Savior. But this includes the lost. Those who persisted in the rebellion will, in the end, not be able to escape the confession that Jesus is Lord. But that confession won't save them. It's too late for them. And they will be carried off to judgment. But they will acknowledge Jesus as Lord. When all is said and done, though, this story ends with the glory of God. God receives all the glory. That's why God created in the first place. That's why God allowed humanity to rebel in the first place. That's why God sent Jesus to take on that human nature and die in the first place. And that's why God exalted Jesus as Lord. It's a story really of, of God story of Jesus, story of even of man. And it begins and it ends with God's glory. As the story ends, I want to ask, is that a good story or a bad story? Is it a happy ending or a tragic ending? And for you, that depends on you. Will you be the one who bows the knee willingly out of faith and love for the king Or will your knees have to be broken in submission due to your rebellion? Will you confess Christ in this life before it's too late? And there will be a time when it's too late. And God calls you to do that. Romans 10.9 If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
Understand, to confess Jesus as Lord means that you recognize He's sovereign in your life. He rules your life. You live like it. You do what He says because you love Him. He's the King who rescued you. Just make certain you know Christ as Lord. You know of your salvation because there will be a day when it will be too late. The story of Jesus summarized here in Philippians 2. It's really the story of the whole Bible. It's what it's all about. God is revealing Himself to us in the Bible. He's revealing redemption to us in the Bible. That is to say, He's telling us Jesus. Jesus reveals those things. He is, after all, the exact representation of God's nature. This tells us about the Lord. And like all good stories, it's meant to communicate truth, and it does. Jesus is Lord. But we will say one more thing. That also, like all good stories... It's meant to impact you. It's meant to leave you changed. This is no different as well. If you're really keen, you may have noticed we skipped the beginning of verse 5. And I did that on purpose because there we find the moral of the story. We've already seen the beginning, middle, and end of the story. But now, by way of reflection, we're going to go back to verse 5 because that's where we find the moral of the story. And the story has a moral. And what is it? Verse 5. Notice how it all begins. Where Paul was saying to this church, he says, verse 5, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he tells us all about Jesus. What's the moral? Share the attitude of Jesus. Paul's not telling us this story for the fun of it. It's not to entertain. He's not simply trying to fill us with doctrine, although there is wonderful doctrine to behold here. We don't want to skip over that. But understand, his primary concern is to motivate you to action. And you see that from the clear command in verse 5. The moral of the story is that you should be exalting Christ as Lord right now. How? By having this attitude in yourself. And what's the attitude? I want to be sure of one thing. Jesus, he didn't die on the cross merely as an example. There was a real substitutionary atonement that took place. But he did, though, in addition, leave us an example. And the attitude we're talking about is the attitude that Jesus exemplified in the incarnation. So what is that? Well, first, it's selflessness. Like we've talked about, he did not regard his privileges as God, as something to be used selfishly but for the benefit of others. So it's selflessness, it's service. He came to serve like a slave, to serve other people for their benefit. It's selflessness, it's service. We could throw in there sacrifice, it's sacrificial. This came at a cost to him. We could put it together and say the attitude is selfless, sacrificial, service. In a nutshell, selfless, sacrificial, service. This is an attitude of selflessly giving up yourself, your power, your possessions, your privileges for the benefits of others. And this attitude should characterize everyone who calls Jesus Lord. So is that you? Do you confess him as Lord with your mouth? And do you show that he's Lord with your life by having this attitude in yourself? And if you have any doubts, just, just rewind two verses. Look at Philippians 2, starting in verse 3. Let's just, just a little bit of context. Look what he says. It's very clear, very direct. Philippians 2, verse 3. He says, Do nothing 
from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. He says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. You want to know the attitude, verses 3 and 4. They tell you the attitude. And in Christ, he shows you the attitude. Selfless, sacrificial service. And what we find then is the story of Jesus. It's not only the means of our salvation. It is the means of our salvation. But it's also the pattern of our sanctification. The king who stooped down to save us, now he wants us to live like him. That's his prerogative. Man, that's a good thing. If you have received Christ, you are called to reflect his selfless, selfless, sacrificial service. So by way of questioning, how often do you think about yourself, your own needs? How often are you concerned about your desires, your wants? How often are you consumed just by yourself? We all have very selfish desires. They oftentimes run our lives and oftentimes ruin our lives. But then again, how often do you deny those desires? Set them aside for the time being in order to serve others. How often do you think about others? How can I serve that person? How can I encourage that person? What can I do for that person in need? How often do you think about someone other than yourself? What's the greatest command? To love the Lord your God with all your heart. What's the second greatest command? To love your neighbor as yourself. It's often been said that the second command is the the pathway to the first, which is to say, how do you love the Lord your God? Well, one way is by loving your neighbor as yourself. God is loved by that in one way. It's a reflection of our love for him because he first loved us and he gave himself up for us. And now what does the king say now? He says, go and do the same. It's not wrong for you to desire blessing. It's not wrong. It's not wrong for you to want exaltation, the glories of heaven. It's not wrong to long for that. Nothing wrong with that. But just realize that the way up is down. The way to exaltation is humiliation. You want to be first? Well, you're going to have to be last. This was true of Christ. The cross came before the crown. And it's true for us as well. We're going to see a pinnacle passage in Mark 8. But here's another one in Mark 10, verse 43, where Jesus says this. He says, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. He says this, key verse, Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you don't follow Christ in this life, what makes you think you'll follow him into the next? Follow Christ in his selflessness, his sacrifice, his service for others. Do it for the glory of God. You too will be exalted. The story of Jesus is by far the greatest story ever told. And it's true. You're called to believe it. 
You're called to live it. Christ died primarily to be our substitute sacrifice, to pay for our sins. But his death also serves as an example. So as a true disciple, you deny yourself, you pick up your cross, you follow him. Don't forget his pattern shown in Philippians chapter 2. You believe him, you remember him, you follow him in life and in death. And in this, Christ the King is greatly exalted and he will lift you up even more. Romans 11.36 For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we exalt your name now. You are worthy of all glory and praise, honor and adoration just for being who you are. You are God. We don't want to take that lightly. We say that often, but you are God. And that makes you worthy of our praise. And even more so, as the great sovereign supreme king, when we were sick and dying due to our own devices, our own sin, you sent your son Christ down into the mire to suffer, to die for us, to be our substitute. How can we not lift up the king even more because of this? We have been redeemed by the king, and we didn't, didn't even deserve it. Thank you, Lord, for this. We thank Christ for all he has done for us. And in his resurrection and his exaltation, he leaves behind a pattern for us to follow as well of selfless, sacrificial service. I pray, Lord, that we give you praise. And one of the greatest ways we can do that is by following Christ's lead, by serving others with humility and love, long-suffering, patience, but just service, sacrificial service. In this, you are greatly pleased, and even we are blessed. So we long to do this. We pray for your assistance through the Spirit to do so. In all things, Lord, though, we lift you up. You are the supreme God. To you, be the glory forever. And bless us now as we depart. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.